Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thanks, Drew. Good to be with you all. If you're new, you're very welcome. Nice to have you here. My name is Steve. Uh, If you have the the passage, do open your Bible, Acts 2, or do keep that with you. We'll be going through that. Uh, We're starting a new series Um, looking at our vision, and we've been very clever because it's the year 2020. We've called it 2020 Vision. I hope you like what we've done there. Um, And we're going to look at three passages in the book of Acts. Acts Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and Acts chapter 6. And we're going to be thinking about what kind of church could we be today? What kind of disciples could we make next week? And what kind of leaders should we have the week after? And we're going to think, for our inspiration, we're going to take the the first ever Christians. What were they like? What did they do? What kind of church were they? What kind of disciples were they? What kind of leaders did they have? And we're going to think about that and think about them being this spirit-filled church. Now, the passage that's been read to us is rightly very famous because this is the first ever church that we know about after the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. So Peter is preaching to a crowd in response to the pouring out of the Spirit in Jerusalem on the church. And we're going to use it to get this 2020 vision of what kind of church could we be if we allowed the Spirit to move in us as the Spirit moved back then. And there's four things that mark out this church. It's a learning church. It's a loving church. It's a worshipping church. And it's a praying church. Four marks that your church is full of the Spirit. Learning, loving, worshipping, and praying. First one. This was a learning church. Do you see verse 42 there in the middle of your handout? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first mark of the early church is they studied what the apostles taught. The apostles were the 12 men selected by Jesus and commissioned by him to steward the message and the doctrine of the Christian faith and to be guardians of it and to spread it. The apostles have spent hours and hours and hours and hours and days and days and days with Jesus learning from him. And then Jesus said, now I'm going to go and you've got to go and teach 
what I've taught you so it might spread over the whole world. And Pat talked about what happened in the fourth century and how that message spread. And as Jesus was preparing the disciples for this task they were going to have of, of being the guardians of truth of the Christian message, he said this. In John, John's gospel, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Jesus is about to die. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So Jesus says, when I'm gone, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and you who are going to be the guardians, and, going to, and we now have this message in the New Testament, are going to be guided into truth by the Holy Spirit. So we don't have the apostles around today to ask questions to, like the early church did, but we have their teaching, which has been captured for us through the Holy Spirit in the New Testament letters and Gospels. And notice, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, not to the sharing of ideas or the sharing of personal experiences. When the church gathers, we don't devote ourselves to the sharing of ideas and personal experiences. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And all our ideas and all our experiences are channeled and understood and interpreted by the apostles' teaching. Of course we come and share our ideas. Of course we come and share our experiences. But we're not devoted to those things. Those things are understood in light of the apostles' teaching. Not what do I think, not what do I feel, not what does society tell me. What did the apostles teach? A spirit-filled church says, what did the apostles teach? And do you see how the study happened, verse 46? In the temple courts and in homes. There were moments like this where probably someone stood up in the synagogue tradition of the Jewish people, the temple courts, and said, I want to proclaim the word of the Lord to you as I understand it. And there was a formal moment of teaching and preaching. And then there was lots and lots of informal moments of chewing over and discussing and, and, and understanding what the apostles taught in smaller groups. So we have our Sunday gatherings and we have our city groups. They had the temple courts and their homes. Unless we forget, this wasn't intellectual study alone. This was learning that was empowered by the Holy Spirit so that our eyes are opened, our hearts are warmed, and our lives are transformed, and those around us are affected because we've devoted ourselves to the apostles' teaching. First mark of a spirit-filled church, it's passionate about the New Testament because that's where we understand what the apostles taught. Secondly, it's a loving church. Do you see the second bit? Verse 42 is where we're going to spend our time. They devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and to fellowship. The original Greek word fellowship has this idea of a, of a common life, a shared life, a life in partnership with one another, this commonality. And the common life that we read about here is beautiful and disturbing. Beautiful because it kind of gives you a vision of community. You kind of thought this is what community is all about. And disturbing because of how radical and sacrificial it is. We've already seen that the early church had an open door policy. Anyone could come in and out of anyone's home. There was an open door policy. They met in each other's homes to eat. But it wasn't just eating. Do you see verse 44 and 45? All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They had everything in common. They would sell things if they heard that other people in the church had needs so they could raise money so that money could be channeled so the church could flourish and grow and be healthy. Two chapters later, we read this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. 
No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I mean, imagine if the landlords in Dublin... I mean, seriously. We've got a housing crisis, and people go, I can't afford the rent. We want a community like this, don't we? Hey, if I have a house, and I find out that someone... Let me see how I can use my house so others could be provided for. God's grace was powerfully at work. They were willing to use their resources and wealth to serve others. It wasn't a renunciation of possessions. It was a renunciation of possessiveness. There was clearly some richer people in the church and poorer people. Some had houses, some didn't. Some made lots of money, some didn't. It's not like we have to flatten everything out, but those that have more say, huh, how can I see the needs of the community around me and use my more to help those with less? It's not wrong to own houses and have businesses and all that. In fact, it's very, very good. But but then what you do with the stewardship of that is really important. There was such a common sharing that when someone discovered a needy person in the church, they were quickly went to work. How can we help? How can we help? And God's grace was at work because they said, Jesus became poor so I could become rich. I have eternal security. I have riches beyond my wildest dreams. I have an inheritance that's never going to perish, spoil, or fade. And so the grace of God in Christ that they'd experienced, that he became poor, that they might become rich, had freed their hearts from needing to hold tight to money. Had freed their hearts thinking, how do I make sure my future's secure? They knew their future was secure. Had freed their heart from going, as long as I've got myself sorted, I'll, I'll I'll see what's left over. No, no, I'm sorted because of Jesus, so what can I do with my money? They were freed from this desire to protect self, provide for self. They were free from jealousy and fear because it says there God's grace was powerfully at work. Which leads us to the next point. They were a worshipping church. Verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread is Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, shorthand for a communion meal, bread and wine. They would have been part of a bigger meal. So they would have come into homes and shared a meal together. And as part of that, they would have remembered the Lord Jesus who said, do this in remembrance of me, break bread and take wine for, to represent my body and my blood. This was their worship to the Lord. And they would have had songs like we had. They would have had prayers like we had. They would have had scriptures like we had. They would have had teaching like we had. And they would have had the Lord's Supper. They worshipped together. I want you to notice two things about their worship. Verse 43 Everyone was filled with awe. There's a sense of awe because God's grace was there. The spirit was or wonder. Verse 46 and 47, that's the first. There was gladness and praising God. In other words, they were such a grateful people, grateful for what God had done for them as they sang, as they shared, as they ate, as they had the scriptures taught, as they praised God together. And they were so grateful, but they never treated God lightly. There was awe. They never treated God lightly. 
there was wonder and awe and reverence and gratitude. So you see, there was this glad and sincere heart, a joyfulness and an awe. You have to have both. The grace of God is at work. In the, in, in the, in the month of May this year, uh, last year, we spent as a church a whole month what we called asking God to renew us, the Renew Month. And we reflected, to help us do that, we reflected on Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus. And this church was a model church. They worked hard. They loved the poor. They persevered in the face of suffering. They defended themselves against false teachers. They're the perfect church, the church in Ephesus that Jesus spoke to. And yet, if you remember, he famously says, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. The church had lost the awe, the wonder, the joy, the gratitude. They were doing all the right things. They believed all the right things, but they weren't worshipping. There wasn't joy. There wasn't awe. There wasn't gratitude. It wasn't just this abundance. God's grace is working in my heart, and it just overflows. And that is why worship always starts at the cross. That's why they shared the Lord's Supper. We are forgiven. We are loved. We're redeemed. We're secured forever. We're ransomed, we're set free. Look what Jesus did to save me at the cross. Grace was at work, and they worshipped. A learning church, a loving church, a worshipping church, a praying church. Do you see that verse 42? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Even before the coming of the Holy Spirit, In chapter 1, we read, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with the brothers. And then in chapter 3, literally the the next verse after our passage, it says, one day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. Do you see, prayer was part of their lives. And do you see, again, there was formal moments of prayer. We're going to gather to do some formal prayer. They went to the temple, and lots of informal prayer. We just met in homes, and we prayed. And later that day, in, the, in, the, in chapter 3 and 4, what happens is uh, Jesus, uh, Peter and Paul, uh, not Peter and Paul, Peter and John heal a, a, a man at the, at the gate of, uh, of the temple. And there's a huge crowd that want to understand this healing. And they start preaching the name of Jesus. And the authorities come in and persecute them. We're going to look at it next week. Um, and and they, they, you know, they, they, they explain what was happening. And then they come back to the early believers who were gathering. And it, and it says that they prayed together. And they actually prayed using Psalm 2 so they could pray according to God's will. They used the scriptures in their prayers. And then at the end of that, it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. These early believers prayed until buildings started to shake. Awe, wonder the grace of God in, in their midst, the Holy Spirit empowering them. And as they're filled with awe and wonder and the Spirit, not only do buildings shake, but the Word of God. Do you see that? Always a sign of the Spirit, Spirit filling you. You go and declare God's Word boldly. These early believers knew they could do nothing without God, so they prayed. Prayer always shows dependence on God. If you're a praying person, it shows, I, I just can't get through this on my own. If you're at lack of prayer, you kind of think you're quite competent. Prayer always shows dependence. These early believers were desperate for God and his power, so they prayed. The Apostle Paul would later write to another church in in Colossae, devote, you see the same word? Devote yourselves to prayer. 
being watchful and thankful. Why are we watchful and thankful as we pray? Well, watchful, how is God answering my prayers? Or how is he not answering them as I want them to be answered? We have to be discerning. If we really believe God's listening, well, watch. He may say no to our prayers, which might frustrate us, but we need to watch and discern. And then gratitude, thankfulness, because when he does answer, or when he answers in ways we don't expect, then we say thank you. So prayer must always be accomplished, accompanied by watchfulness, what does God do in response, and thankfulness as we thank him for listening and answering. Four marks of a spirit-filled church, a learning church, a loving church, a worshipping church, a praying church. Let me make a few comments as we think about us and the kind of church we could be, as we too are filled and make ourselves available to the spirit. Notice that they were devoted Devoted means at least three things. At least. It means allegiance. It means you've said, it's not like I'm hedging my bets, so, you know, I'm one foot in, one foot out, like, you know, I'm going to see if there's any better options out there. And, and, you know. No, no, no. When you're devoted, you say, my allegiance lies here. I'm in. I'm in with you, God. I'm in with this bunch of people that are your church. I'm in. I'm all in. I'm not, I'm not looking so well. Is this going to make me, is this going to open me up to hurt? Well, maybe, but I'm in. Secondly, allegiance. Secondly, devotion means intentionality. When you're devoted, you know what you're devoted about. And most importantly, I think in our modern world, where we hate cutting down our options, you know what you can't be devoted to because of what you're devoted to. Isn't that a problem in our world? Well, we don't want to say no to some things, so we just, you know, the old adage, you know, it's better to do a few things well than lots of things badly. And we're like, well, if I say, if I devote myself to this, it means I can't devote myself to this. Yes. Devotion means intentionality, and you know what you're saying no to, and you know what you're saying yes to. You cannot be devoted to everything. So what are you devoted to? The early believers were devoted to one another and to the Lord and the apostles' teaching and everything we've been thinking about. Jesus famously said it like this, famously said it like this, you cannot serve both God and money. Either you'll love one and hate the other, but you can't have two masters. So work out today, who are you devoted to? What are you devoted to? And don't forget, the early church was devoted to one another as well as the Lord. So devotion means allegiance, devotion means intentionality, and therefore devotion means sacrifice. When you're devoted to something, you make sacrifices for it. It's kind of part of your worship. Worship always has sacrifice. So think of Olympic athletes. They're devoted to winning the gold medal. And my life, do they make sacrifices? Their diet, can they drink alcohol? How late can they socialize at night? Can they just head off whenever they want to? They were so restricted in their daily, weekly, annual cycles of living because they have a goal and they're devoted to it. Well, we aren't devoted to winning the gold medal. We're devoted to win the world for Christ. How much more should we go, wait a minute, I need to know what I have to say no to and sacrifice because I'm, 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 I'm putting Jesus first. It will restrict you. It will mean you have to make decisions in community. It means your career may be hindered. It means the expectation of the house you might live in or the place you might bring your children up might be affected, and so on and so forth. But devotion requires sacrifice. These early believers weren't half in, half out. They were full of allegiance for one another, full of intentionality, and sacrificed greatly. We want to be that kind of church? 
We have to think about our devotion. Secondly, they were financially generous. A mark that the grace of God is at work in your life and you're devoted to the, other, the others in the church is it affects your finances. I love the way the, the Apostle Paul talks about a, a church in Corinth years later. And he says, to this, he says this, and it's a bit of a long passage, but stay with me. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This Macedonian church, years later, had been so overwhelmed by the grace of God, they were in severe trial, they were very poor, they lived in like austerity and they had a housing crisis and everything we had, they, they were in a tough spot, it says. But they urgently said, can we share? We are so devoted, we want to share in this and we want to give financially that the Apostle Paul had to try and stop them giving money. And then in the end, they still said no and they gave beyond really what they were able to, it affected how they lived. Just recently, I read about the financial offering, again, that, that was needed to create the tabernacle, which was going to house the presence of God in the Old Testament. And uh, if you remember the story, they'd been delivered out of Israel, uh, out of Exodus, uh, delivered out of, out of Egypt through the Exodus. They were the Israelites. They'd been delivered out, and they find themselves at Mount Sinai. And God says, I've rescued you now. I want to sort of marry you. I want to give you my law. And Moses goes up on the mountain to receive God's word, to know how they're to live for him and please him. And as they're up there, they sort of get bored and they say to Aaron, oh, you know, can you make us like a little you know, idol that we can worship and say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And so they get all their jewelry together and they make a golden calf. It's a very famous moment. So as Moses is up there encountering God, as God is saying, this is how much I love you and what I want to do with you, they are prostituting themselves to a golden calf. And everything that God did for them, they're saying, really was down to this silly calf. And as Moses comes down the hill, God says, I want to wipe them out. I'm done. In my holiness and in my, in my anger, I want to get rid of these like, stupid people that just won't even have to have rescued them after years and years of slavery. Like A few minutes later, they're turning to idols. And not only idols, they were rampantly immoral as well. And Moses, the intercessor, pleads with God and says, no, think about your reputation, Lord. They're your people. You brought them out. What the other name? And Moses, Moses intercedes. And God says, okay, I'll forgive them. And the people are trembling because they realize what they've done. And then they encounter the grace of God in their mess, in their sin, in their idolatry, in their immorality. God forgives them and says, I'm going to stay with you. And then there is a radical financial outpouring to build the tabernacle where God will live. It says this, the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers were doing all the work on the sanctuary, left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent his word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else, uh, uh, is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more 
because they already had more than enough to do the work. It's the same with the Macedonians. It's the same with those in Jerusalem. When you understand the grace of God, that you've been forgiven, that Jesus became poor so you could become rich, that you have an eternal security, you have an everlasting significance. Money does not therefore have a hold on you. You don't use money to make yourself secure, and you don't use money to make yourself significant. You have security and significance in Jesus. When grace hits your life, you handle money differently. And so, like Paul, Moses had to say, we've got to stop all this giving. We've got enough. This wasn't financial giving motivated by duty, by guilt, by pride, by comparison. This was motivated by grace and the need that they saw amongst the people of God. And notice, too, the role of leaders in handling the money. You know, Paul says, you know, you gave the money to us. Moses had to handle the money. They, they sold fields and gave it to the apostles, so the apostles did the distributing of the money. Leadership is vital for handling the money that the church gives. Now, we all know the abuse through the centuries, and God's going to hold every leader who abused the giving of the saints for, for their own gain. They're going to be held accountable for that. But let us not make the mistake of saying the mistakes of the past will dictate the practices of the future. Let's have 2020 vision. When God's grace moves you, you trust leaders to say, hey, I'm going to give money. What's the vision? Where's there a need? And we trust you to distribute it. Are you devoted or do you want to hold on? See the difference? Submitting to church leadership and the financial stewardship of money, which of course comes with accountability and transparency. That's why I urge you to come to the AGM and our vision night is part of the grace of God being at work. So come tonight. It's, come and learn. Come and ask your questions. If you, haven't, if you, don't, if you say, Christ City Church is my home I belong to this, these are my brothers and sisters, and you don't give financially, can I urge you, start giving. Give what you can, just start. Set up a standing order. If you already give and you go, well, I haven't really thought about my giving for a number of years, think about it, maybe up it. If you're a student and you've always gone, well, you know, I live on loans and I don't have any money, you have plenty of disposable income. Start putting a bit of it aside and set up that standing order. They were devoted. They were financially generous. Thirdly, they were balanced. Do you love it, don't you? They learned, engaged their minds, and they worshipped, they engaged their hearts. They're not all like cerebral Christians, and they aren't all just those sort of passionate Christians. They're mind and heart Christians. Do you notice that they were praying and loving? So praying means they're seeking God. Loving means they're getting on with practically loving their neighbor. They're vertical and horizontal. They're formal and informal. I've talked about this. The temple courts and in their homes. There was spontaneity, I'm sure, at times, and great formality at other times. And neither was put higher than the other. The formal moments are not as good as the spontaneous. No, no, no. They've all got their place. There's balance. They were joyful, but reverent. And they were evangelistically passionate and socially engaged. Chapter 2 in the whole book of Acts is fully clear that the gospel was preached and people were called to repent and believe and receive eternal life. In fact, that is what prefaces this amazing verse 42, Peter preaching evangelistically and saying, hey, you need to be saved. And many of them were, and then they gathered as they were saved. So read the verses again with me, verse 38 to 41, just on the handout there. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your, our God will call. With many words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to that number that day. They devoted themselves. Do you see? Unashamed evangelism. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. You need to get right with God. There's only one way of doing that, through Christ. Save yourself. Proclamation of the gospel was front and center of the early church. And ensuring there were no needy persons among them was also front and center of the early church. They shared their possessions, and they didn't have this ulterior motive like, well, we're going to do social action so we can do the, maybe get the opportunity to do the really important thing of, of preaching the gospel. No, they loved the poor because they loved the poor. Of course they wanted to share the gospel, but they never shared the gospel. They loved the poor. So social action and evangelism were right at the heart of that early church. As one person put it, clearly then it was not a case of substituting social action for evangelism or merging social action with evangelism but of preaching the love of God in Christ and in the context of a community that demonstrated that love practically. This combination of evangelistic preaching and social concern must characterize the agenda of a growing church today as well. Do you see the balance of this church? Learning and worshiping, praying and loving, formal and informal, joyful and reverent, evangelistically zealous and socially concerned. Of course the Lord was adding to their number daily, those who are being saved, who wouldn't want to join this church? May God give us something of this balance. Fourthly, they were clear on baptism as a way to belong. It says that Peter preached, repent and be baptized, and you'll be forgiven and receive the Spirit and automatically be joined to this community. Today we've lost this connection between salvation and baptism and church membership. We sort of separated out. Back then it was like, repent, be baptized, and now you're part of this community. To be, in the early church, to believe and be baptized were inseparable because you joined Jesus and his church in that moment. And the thing is, for those early Christians, salvation was not just this private matter. Salvation was more a matter of leaving a community under judgment to find refuge in the saved community of the church. Peter says, save yourself from this corrupt generation around you. So there is individual repentance and conversion. But as you make that decision for Jesus, you're saying, I now belong not to this world, but to this community. I'm not under judgment anymore. I'm part of the saved people of God. Why do I mention this? Well, baptism is central to the Great Commission. Go and make disciples and baptize them. This is what the apostles taught. They taught baptism is an automatic uh, part of this salvation process and joining the church. I, I put off baptism for years. I was baptized in the tradition my parents uh, brought me up in, which I'm so grateful for. They baptize infants. As I came to understand that the New Testament taught believers' baptism, I put it off. I found excuses, and I was even church leadership. And I thought, no, I need to get on with this and obey what the apostles taught. And so I urge you, have a think. Have you really got a good reason not to be baptized if you're a believer here? But I mention it for another reason. Because of what baptism signifies. Baptism signifies devotion. Devotion to Jesus and his church. We live in a society that is fragmenting. And forming deep and meaningful friendships seems harder and harder. We take longer to settle down. 
We don't want to narrow down our choices. We have a hundred friends online without anyone actually knowing us. And we can easily leave town and move to a new city when a cool opportunity comes. Our society has a problem forming the kind of community we see in Acts chapter 2. We prefer to stay safe, stay in control, not make ourselves vulnerable, not be that committed, not be that devoted, not be that restricted. We don't want to love like this because it inhibits the personal freedom that our modern culture champions. And yet we long for the kind of community they had then. That authenticity, that belonging, that mutuality, that being known and loved, people caring for us. We don't want emotional isolation. We want what they had. And so we're caught between these two desires. And baptism is a way of saying, I'm in. I'm leaving the way the world thinks of keeping all your options open. And I'm saying, no, I'm devoted to this community. I'm dying to self. I'm taking up my cross. I'm committing unreservedly to Jesus and his church. So if you've not been baptized, think about it, consider it. If you have been baptized, remember what baptism signifies. You now have a role. Baptism is part of making sure this church is healthy and flourishes because you said, I'm in. I'm devoted to it. Lastly, they were a spirit-filled church. None of this is stuff we can do. The Christian life isn't something we can do on our own. We can't conjure it up, we can't force it, but as we repent and believe and are baptized, Peter says the Spirit fills us and enables us. He's the one that brings the balance. He's the one that brings the awe. He's the one that works the grace of God so deeply that we find we're generous with our money. He opens our eyes to the scriptures and the needs of the community around us. J.B. Phillips is a kind of equivalent in the 60s, 50s and 60s to... Uh, to Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message. You know, J.B. Phillips translated the New Testament uh, years and years ago. Brilliant translation, if you want a sort of modern translation. And after translating the book of Acts, he comments, it is impossible to spend months in close study of this remarkable short book without being profoundly stirred and, to be honest, disturbed. The reader is stirred because he is seeing Christianity, the real thing, in action for the first time in human history. The newborn church, as, a vul as vulnerable as any human child, having neither money, influence, nor power in the ordinary sense, is setting forth joyfully and courageously to win the pagan world for God through Christ. Yet, we cannot help feeling disturbed as well as moved. For this surely is the church as it was meant to be. It is vigorous and flexible. For these are the days before it ever became fat and short of breath through prosperity or muscle-bound by over-organization. These men did not make acts of faith. They simply believed. They did not say their prayers. They really prayed. They did not hold conferences on psychosomatic medicine. They simply healed the sick. But if they were uncomplicated and naive by modern standards, we have ruefully to admit that they were open on the Godward side in a way that is almost unknown today. They were open on the Godward side. They were filled with the Spirit. Later, he says this, J.B. Phillips. I'm quoting this book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. The Holy Spirit has a way of short-circuiting human problems. Indeed, in exactly the same way as Jesus Christ is the flesh in the flesh, cut right through the matted layers of tradition and exposed the real issue. So we find here in Acts, the Spirit of Jesus dealing not so much with problems as with people. Many problems comparable to modern complexities never arise here because men and women 
concerned were of one heart and mind in the Spirit, since God's Holy Spirit cannot conceivably have changed one iota through the centuries, he is perfectly prepared to short-circuit by inflow of love, wisdom, and understanding many human problems today. They were a spirit-filled church. They were open on the Godward side. They found problems being short-circuited, not because the problems got solved, but because the Spirit, what they may have done, was at work in their lives. Does Acts chapter 2 disturb and excite you? I hope it does both. But don't put the heavy weight of saying, we've got to become this church on our shoulders. We turn to God. We open up our Godward side and say, God, would you breathe again? And would we even see a fraction of what they saw? as they learned, as they loved, as they worshipped, as they prayed, as they were devoted, as they were financially generous, as they were balanced, and as they were clear on the allegiance that they were making. Who knows? Maybe God could start adding to our number daily those who are being saved. Wouldn't that be amazing? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this early church, this inspiration, this disturbing yet exciting vision of community and your, your spirit at work. We pray you'd even do a fraction of that in us. Just a fraction, Lord, and we'd be happy. And I pray that your grace would powerfully work in us as we come to this communion table now, considering what you have done for us in giving up your life, in becoming poor and vulnerable, in losing your freedoms so we could have eternal freedom, that your grace would be at work in our hearts. So draw us deeper, Lord, into you and into your love and fill us afresh with the Spirit. And we pray for this church that we would be this devoted to one another and to you, that we might make the kind of impact they made back then. And we pray that for Jesus' glory. Amen.